Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode I'm joined by a guest or in this case two who will help me navigate and understand some of these questions and many many more. Today I want to talk about the language we use in conversations around race and racism. Ethnic minorities, global majorities, people of colour, mixed race, BAME, diversity, The language we use and the unease many of us feel in navigating this terrain speaks at least in part to the difficulties in using the categories of meaning we intend to subvert for the subversion. Is there a way out of that conundrum? To discuss this linguistic minefield, I'm joined by two women who've been working on a black shenari. Maggie Semple OBE was instrumental in creating the Black British Voices Survey, which publishes its results this summer, 2022, and is co-author with Jane Oromosu, who is also here with us, uh, of My Little Black Book, which is the Black Dictionary in question, which aims to help people navigate the language of race and find the right words. Maggie is also a businesswoman and entrepreneur, founder of the fashion brand Semple, a member of the Queen's Council appointments panel and is cited in the world's who's who. And also joining us, of course, is Jane Oromosu, who is a coach, trainer and mentor and, of course, co-author of the book in question, My Little Black Book. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your time. I suppose my first question is, why did you decide to write a little black book? I have an inkling, but tell, tell me the story. How did this come about? Well, it's, it's lovely to be here, Miriam, and uh, thank you for, for inviting us. Um, the, the one thing about Maggie and I is we are extremely, um, we're fearless in what we do and how we do things. And when we started our business a couple of years ago, we both of us had a book within us and we had the idea to write a book. Um, And I know Maggie will will, um, expand on this, but the the idea was percolating. And then we had an, an instant, this is what we need to do because we found a gap in the market. But we were also being asked quite a lot of questions. I'll let Maggie come on to that as to how that then stimulated why the Blacktionary was the book for us to write. And thank you for that, Jane. And also thank you, Miriam, for um, the very warm welcome, very warm. And in your introduction, you touch on a number of topics that we've actually put in our book as well, um, which are very serious for, for people and humanity and societies and communities. So our book, you know, we knew from our working together, Jane and I, and separately, that the more that people knew about, let's call it inclusion, the more that we started to talk, whoever we were at home or in the workplace, more about how do we get people to feel that they belong to our community and belong to the workplace and we want them to be at their best, all these good words. 
But actually, the more we know, the more cautious we are in calling the word or describing it. So Jane and I thought, why don't we just be helpful to people, to families? <laughs> you know, we've had discussions with grandparents to their children. You know, why don't we um, just be helpful? And that's why we wrote the book. It was to be helpful and to put words in there um, and descriptions so that people, when they're just getting a little bit anxious, that is it okay to say BAME? We'd go, no. Is it okay to call Jane and I coloured? in the UK? No, <laughs> you know, but we, not gently, but we just want to just say, come on, you should know this is changing, whoever you are. So that was the impetus for the book. And and so just out of interest, I mean, obviously, there have been quite a few high profile examples of people using terminology, and then, you know, doing the usual refrain of apologising, because for various reasons, they claim they didn't understand what terminology to use and 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 I really want to talk about the public reactions actually to these you know faux pas or you know maybe that's not what you'd characterize them as I know there are different views on on uh, whether ignorance is even a legitimate excuse in 2022 for not knowing some of this terminology um but before we we get to that I want to take a step back and ask you about your own experiences with regards to terminology. I mean, did you have personal frustrations in the workplace? I mean, you're both obviously business women. Was this something that kind of kept coming up in 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 your in your day to day life, where you just thought, you know, someone someone's got to say it? Um, I didn't experience difficulty with words being said to me within the workplace. Um, and maybe it's because it wasn't fully on my radar, but I had other experiences that were uncomfortable and invasive and as a result of being black and female. Um, and so I dropped the workplace and set up my own business, one, one of two. Um, and I would say that it was really after the George Floyd incident that it became very apparent that organizations suddenly had this almost like an awakening that things had to change and that one of the huge gaps they had was in the language around race and it, the question that Maggie and I always say is well how do you keep up with the evolution of language as a whole so that was what really drove and motivated us to to put this together um, and it happened really quickly so that, in a way, tells you that it was the timing was absolutely right for us. Yeah, and my experience of being um, a person born in the in London, actually, of um, you know, kind of black heritage, is that my father, when he was born in British Guyana, of what we kind of call mixed race, might call it dual heritage. And you talked about in the beginning, Miriam, about the linguistics of what we're looking at too. But when he was born in British Guyana, he would have been called half-caste. And when he came to the UK with my mother and my sister and I were born, he was quite strong on teaching us about racism, which in those days was um, quite a strong thing for a parent to do because there weren't very few resources. I mean, I just say to people, look at me. I wasn't, I was educated in the UK, 
On the media, there were no people that looked like me. In my books, there was no one that told stories about me. Um, my whole curriculum, even at university, was so white European-centric. I just sometimes think I'm amazed, and I'm not the only person, to have done what I've been able to do. Because <laughs> given all that, I've still managed to do some things and make a, a bit of a dent in the world. So race has always been at the heart of my upbringing. And the countless experiences I've had as a child growing up in school, university education, into the workplace, you know, I don't have to go looking for it. It finds me. It absolutely does. And I'll give you one example. As a child, we used to play a game with your mum's stocking or your tights, you cut them, you put a ball in the end of it, and you wrap it around your wrist. And we lived in a house, you know, kind of we had we had a garden when we were growing up in London. Um, and we used to take the stocking, my sister and I each had one, and you would hit the wall next to you with this stocking and you'd have a child's rhyme. The rhyme was, I won't say the proper word, the N word, N, N, pull the trigger, bang, bang, bang. And I used to play that with my sister. This is about eight or nine. And my father just said to us one day, girls, do you know what you're saying? We went, it's a nursery rhyme. It's what everyone does in the playground. He went, well, let me just introduce you to the N word what it really means and its history. And part of when people make faux pas in the media, I'm not so forgiving, to be honest. We all make faux pas, of course. But you do expect part of someone being as a, a well-known character, celebrity, for them to take make particular attention, take attention to what they say. Because when someone says something, there's, there's a connotation, there's something behind it. And by retracting it, that's when they get a bit in difficulty, really. You know, it, you can't call someone something and then say you didn't mean it. Where does that come from? Mm. Well, and I, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, where does it come from? It comes from the the wider uh, cultural landscape in which certain term terminology, whether uh you know in smaller circles circles or wider society continues to permit the use of certain terminology and i think um you know as someone who navigates different worlds um as many of us do uh there are codes in different words and i know i know code switching is something you touch on in the book as well um i wanted to ask you about um the importance of terminology and the reason i want to ask that is because i've got some friends who will say you know what, you can call me whatever you want. I actually don't really care. What I care about is my ability to access jobs, my ability to get uh, healthcare at the same level, my ability to be uh, housed in proper accommodation. You know, words, the focus on words is, you know, they, some people might say, a distraction from the structural inequalities that dominate people's lives it turns it into a she said he said versus you know what some people might argue are really really harmful structural inequalities that affects people's sort of life and death situations language is part of the systemic i'll call it racism but systemic issues that you've just described in society so if anyone who says well i don't care what you call me i, mean, I take a gulp really so I don't care what you call me. Um, and then you're saying, but I want access to good housing. I want this, I want that. So you should. But you need to care about how you 
are being described, but more importantly, how you describe yourself. Systemic issues, that is part of it. It's not just the structures and policies in place, it's the language to describe who has access to what facilities and so on. So uh, I'd like to meet your friends, actually. (laughs) (laughs) They might not want to meet me, but... (laughs) or us. Well, I suppose it's part of the wider debate over, you know, where where the focus of energies have to be directed, I guess. And, you know, some people, particularly, I think, at a time where the, the diversity industry has taken such a, such a, a boom, right? There's a lot of interest in um, what kinds of changes people can make, what kinds of changes large corporations can make. Um, and, and I certainly have had people on the program before who've said, you know, they've learned how to say all the right things. But, you know, when you look at the way that this, the organisations are structured, not much has actually changed there. So how do you avoid that pitfall? How do you avoid sort of training corporations who are sort of masters at getting around actual equalities in the right language but not the actual substance that goes with it? It's it's a really interesting question and I just want to pick up on your previous question about terminology and and you use the word, you know, you talked about energies as well. Words have energy. Every single word has its own energy vibration to it and with, with that comes an intention and why it's so important to care what we say and how we say is because we think we do think in pictures, but we also have dialogue, internal dialogue. And part of the, the, I think, the fundamental problem is because we all accept that there is more than one race. When the truth of the matter is, there is only one human race. But we have been rightfully or wrongfully, for whatever reason, been broken down into different races. And if we don't start to change the narrative, around the word race, this problem will continue. And that's why we should really care. And the only way to do that is to start with the internal behaviours, because what is internal will always uh, become external. So working with leaders, it is about really helping them to understand their thought processes, because as you think, so you are. You may not say it, but your behaviour will certainly demonstrate what's happening within. So, sorry, Maggie. Yeah, Jay uh, Jay makes a a really good point there, because this this external, so I believe the internal, of course, but the external piece is what I think organisations are also having to worry about now, which is they won't win work. That's what's increasingly changing. So the external environment is almost forcing organisations and businesses, and the ones we work with, Jane, that actually, you know, they can skirt around this if they wish internally, but it will show up when they go to pitch for business, when they, they're trying to attract new customers or new clients or new consumers. It's no longer acceptable. The, the public, thank goodness, and particularly on social media, are being more inquisitive. They're more they're less forgiving they want you to answer for things so i think organizations who just think they can put their heads in the sand and just bury it and it'll all just pass by and that'll be it they won't be here in 50 years time they just won't be because that's not what actual people who buy things want and and so in this um assessment of the language that people are using um I presumably one aspect of it is just education, people understanding the terminology that they're using. But is there also like a list of like 
the worst offenders, the, the, the terminology that you go into organisations and you say, these terms should never be used. And are there any worst offenders that you would want to say, you know, if any of this is in your lexicon, you might want to edit it out now? Yeah, so when we wrote the book, we were really keen not to include those kinds of words. Because Jane often says this, Jane, but we talk about weaponizing language. So when we go into organizations, we don't tell people what they can't say, but we turn it around and say the right thing, the moral thing, the thing that's going to get you from A to B is having that mindset, which is about a positive use of the language that we have, really. So we tend not to dwell on you know, a list of no words, um, but they do exist. Jane, we talk about white fragility, don't we? Example. <laughs> yes, thank you for that, Maggie. Yes, we do. And, and Snowflake as well. And even as you're saying it, you can feel the energy behind it is just so demeaning and diminishing. And and it, it, it's words have have um, depending on how who says in the manner in which it's said and who is the receiver, it can have a visceral. In fact, it can emotionally trigger individuals and have a visceral sensation within. And it's being about being aware. What we do is really, really raise awareness of the connection between what you're saying, your intention behind it. Um, if you're hearing something that offends, and um, not not that long ago we were discussing name bias, which is in in our book about um, the the negative connotation that can be attributed to someone's name because it's not necessarily easy to pronounce. And yet the most important thing as human beings is the need to be seen and the need, need to, be, to be heard. And we know that our names are the first thing that we identify with and we are very proud of our names. And it is the one piece about us that we will correct to, over and above probably anything else because of how much it means to us. It gives us a sense of belonging. Um, I'm from Nigeria, a lot of Nigerian names. In fact, all Nigerian names have meanings. It can refer to which tribe you're from. It can talk about whether you're part of a royal lineage. So there's so much in a name. And yet when your name is either not um, given that respect that it deserves, because someone doesn't want to take the time to learn how to pronounce it, or when, because of your name, your CV is put in the bin because the individual who is doing the filtering thinks, no, it's the damaging lasting effect is what we are really wanting to raise the awareness with organizations, because obviously we know that with diversity comes a lot of creativity, a lot of, a lot of different ways of thinking about things, solving problems, it really adds to the tapestry of an organization and the success of that organization. And I think that penny is now beginning to drop. But it's about let's focus on the right way to do things because organizations have become tongue tied since 2020. And we are helping to undo that. So when it comes to being tongue tied, what do you say to them about some of the terms that I'm sure these are not on the worst offenders list because we've you know, clarified that 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 list is not even worth going to. Um, but but certainly, I know a lot of people would find some of this terminology uh, problematic, to say the least. So 
I'd love to uh, go through, I know we can't go through the whole dictionary, but a few of them with you, if that's all right. Let, let's talk about BAME. Let's talk about BAME just because it's a very common one. You know, it's cited everywhere. It's, you know, news organizations, you know, corporations. It's pretty much perceived, I would say, as acceptable, but it's also one that a lot of people find quite disturbing. Why is that? So, BAME in, in our Black Dictionary, Black Asian Minority Ethnic, that's the first thing to ask people. What does BAME stand for? Not everyone knows what it stands for. We just use the phrase BAME, say, or the word. So, a, and we carry on. A term initially used for data gathering, and that's where it started, and quickly turned into a controversial acronym to describe people who are not white. So when you say to an organisation, as we often do, so who, who's BAME? Okay, Black Asian Minority Ethics, when we get them there, Who's not BAME then? And then everyone kind of, you see, we've seen pennies dropping. Ah, kind of anyone who's not in that group. And who is that? Etc. Not white. Just so, white people. Just white people. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be a revelation to some people when we say that. But the term itself was from, a, it's a data tool. It mm. tells us, you know, when we do those forms and we're getting more and more used to completing them for all sorts of things, Gathering that data in a workplace, particularly, or for government, is that we then that it's just then lumped together. Well, what organisations are now doing is they're, they're respecting not to use the word phrase BAME, but also they're disaggregating their data so they don't just lump everyone together. Because when organisations did, and they still do to some extent, the group that now the focus has become more and more on is the black of the Asian and mixed or minority ethnic. So mm. that's, and, and no one wants to say that, but actually that's true when people look at the data. And doesn't even the word black obscure a lot? Because obviously we know that outcomes, for example, just from schools um, is different for black African versus black Caribbean children and pupils. We also know that, you know, some of the most financially successful women in this country are, you know, black Nigerian women. So that doesn't the term black also obscure, but you wouldn't want to not use that term or would you? Um, Jane, I don't know if you've got a point on this, but for me, um, I th I would want to use that term, and then we get more sophisticated in articulating what, as you've just said, you know, described what what it then is in that huge communities of being black, but we're not there yet. I mean, we're just not there. I think that's too sophisticated, to be honest, with many organisations to actually um, articulate well in a way that they feel confident. And their behaviour, Jane's earlier point, their behaviour, the intention of using it and saying it from their behaviour is born true. But I don't think organisations are necessarily that sophisticated yet. And um, my history of, of being in this country is I left in the very early 70s when I was five. Uh, my father being Nigerian, my mother of dual heritage, and they met here while he was at university. And... Um, he knew why he didn't want us to grow up here because he just came to do university. Um, and so I grew up in Nigeria until I was in my mid twenties and then came back to the UK. And in Nigeria, you don't know you're black. When I got to this country in the nineties, that was the first time I became aware 
that I was black. So the question even arises, who created the word black to describe people? Because we don't call ourselves black in Nigeria. We have 32 tribes, we have 32 dialects. We have three main tribes in the north, the Hausas, we have the Igbos, we have the Yorubas. Within the Yorubas section or tribe of which I, I am from, we then have our own dialects. So it's very apparent that you may be speaking Yoruba, the general dialect, but then there is other sectors. So you all know where you are from. And, and so it's, it's about almost really getting quite granular and dissecting what does black really mean, really? Because the truth of the matter is, as a color, we know what the color black is, a skin color. No one is black. No one. Shades of brown, but we're not black. So that's when it becomes a, a political thing, the statement being black and with a capital B, um, which has had a history of mainly black Americans, but black people claiming the word and re giving it different value than black being something of a commodity, something that you enslave, something that you buy and you sell and, and so on. And you know, we can, when we look at black, start talking about ethnicity as well. That The language gets a bit blurred because black is so all-encompassing. Um, it's nationality, it's ethnicity too. It's more than just the colour of a skin, I think. And of course, political blackness in yeah. the 80s encompassed yeah. Asian people who yeah. identified still, and many still do. I've met many people today who would say, you know, political blackness is a movement. That, yeah. you know that they identify with um and and so I'm also really interested I mean we touched on it a little bit here in terms of categorizations and um the academic Mahmoud Mamdani he talks about the ways that we've inherited categories of human distinction that were rooted in the colonial era you know it was the colonial management of humans uh, for very specific purposes, you know, the purposes of control and domination and exploitation that, that led to people being divided into categories which we continue to use today. And some people will say, well, we need them for the census and to know what inequalities look like. But is there a way out of that? Do we need to continue to use categories that were created for the purposes of domination because we continue to be able to extract useful information from them. Is there a way out of that conundrum or do we or is there enough of an evolution of this terminology that, you know, uh, as African-Americans might say around other words like the N word, some people are today, it takes on a different meaning when I use it, not me, obviously, <laughs> but when they use it. Um, is there a way out of this? These were categories of meaning that were inherently racist. Why are we still using them? Yeah, and it's a really great point. Um, my thought is, yes, not all, every word, but many of the words you've described have come out of um, oppression, they've come out of colonization, as you've said, and so on, all for gain of the, not the people <laughs> who've been categorized and named. So that we can be clear about. For me, my energy looks at, okay, can we change the word and obliterate it and not use it? Yes, we can, because we've got words that we wouldn't say today that we used to say about all sorts of things 
50 years ago, 100 years ago. So yes, we can as, as human beings, we can do that. We can also give new meaning to other words as well. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give new meaning to words that might have had a history that no one's very proud of, that we're now trying to say, for, for our reasons, Jane and I, we're going to keep this word in the lexicon of language of what we're trying to describe and the experiences we're trying to have, but we're going to give it a different meaning. And indeed, we're going to create some new words, which we also have done in the Blackstionary. <laughs> One of which is the word Blackstionary. Indeed, uh, first time I've definitely heard that one. Um, so just before I move on to the next word that I'd love to, to explore with you, um, for people who are still using BAME colloquially, would you say uh, don't use it? And if so, what would you suggest people replace the term with? Are there any situations where BAME is an accurate word to use? I think BAME isn't an accurate word phrase to use anymore because it just clumps everyone together. And it's just disrespectful now, today, it's disrespectful. So what organizations are doing, they understand that, they've, they've tried to eradicate BAME, but they have to replace it with something. And they are trying to be more deliberate about saying different groups of people. Still gets into difficulty, because you do, you do black, Asian, uh, do we go Southeast Asia? I mean, do we do China, here we go. and we to categorize again in that way. So <laughs> the language is going to keep carrying evolving, but many organizations we work with, they've now got something like black, so they're very clear about that. They've got um, Asian. Um, they don't talk about minority ethnic because as you said in the introduction, we're a world majority. So, and most organizations we work with are global. So you can't go with that mindset. Um, and they're looking at, there's an ethnicity piece in there as well. But no one's come up with a phrase that I think is going to be the next kind of acronym that we're all going to adopt, really. And it, it, it's, it's interesting because when you see how the world is evolving and how, you know, probably back in the 60s, mixed marriages were few and far between. But now there are so many um so many of us who have so many different bloodlines i mean as maggie talked about you know her her heritage i've got swedish blood in me as well as black american blood as well as nigerian blood and, and in english blood you know and when i look at my nieces they've also got german blood in them so you know what, what really is a definition of a, of, of a person's sense of belonging is it, is it how that individual chooses to identify because i think that's what it should be about now well, so I guess that's also the question of, you know, reinforcing the very categories of meaning that ultimately the entire movement is dedicated in some ways to minimizing the actual importance of as categories of separation. And so I'm just also curious as to how, you know, it, you know, sometimes the attempt to get around the terminology seems to me to create further divisions that hark back to the very categories that were designed for a purpose of control and domination and you know although they are helpful today I'm not sh in some regards certainly as I said you know in, in getting a sense of inequalities on the ground um, how do we create a language 
that doesn't buy into those historic distinctions, which were basically rooted in eugenics. <laughs> like, you know, we don't have to sign up to that way of seeing the world. We don't have to sign up to dividing people according to their the the amount of melanin they have in their skin or, you know, traits that we associate. Um, so I'm, you know, that's definitely something I, I'm, you know, I know we don't have simple answers to. Um, I'd love to ask you now about the term ally and allyship. Um, again, a term that a lot of people have mixed views about. Um, I personally do not like the term ally. I don't consider myself to be an ally. I, um, you know, think that it sounds um, a little bit like uh, a sort of uh, a, a sidekick uh, position when actually I think that um, in the struggle for human equality, which the struggle against racial inequality is one facet of, uh, no one should be a sidekick. Um, but uh, I, I'm very keen to hear what your thoughts are on on the word ally. Should should white people be seeking to be allies? I think definitely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's about each of us, no matter who we are should be greater than just who we represent. So I should, for example, for, for no particular reason, you know, I could be an ally of, I'll call it the disability kind of movement. No, no reason other than I think I want to, I should be and so on. And I think that's what people should be doing. I think people should be allies because I, I, I don't know about your listeners and, and, and you, Miriam, but you know, when you start movements, when you're trying to get, to get buy-in from many people, um, when you start an initiative, when you're entrepreneurial, you want people to be associated with you that then can support what you're doing. You can't, we can't just do this on our own. We cannot eradicate words from the, the language just like that. Um, we can put pressure on people, but sometimes, you know, having a white man, for example, to be quite crude about it, being an ally of a staff network that looks at um, let's call it race, whatever the network's called, but let's call it race, um, can be a very powerful thing because then you're subverting and you're using the power of that individual just by his very being to get what you need. So I would like to persuade you to think about that. I think there's I a big you. difference between you calling someone an ally yeah. and a white person calling themselves an ally. And for me, therein lies the problem. Uh -huh. So the conversation on allyship is a bit like when a man says, I'm a feminist. And I say, I'll let you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, I think that the appropriation of that, like saying I'm an anti-racist, like I could never make that claim. That's something that people who are on the front lines of experiencing racism can let me know whether I'm actually providing a constructive contribution to that um and i kind of don't really feel that white people should have any say in defining their positionality within that but that isn't it something that's in our power to confer on people can't we kind of well who's the we, <laughs> we as in this case black people or yeah. people of color or yeah. women or you know don't we have that that's when we take the power that's when we kind of use the language to create the change. So we don't give it out anywhere and everywhere. We just say, you know what, sponsor A, you are fantastic in the workplace. I know strategically you'd be great to be the ally of this particular network. 
in the workplace. And um, for that, I want you to speak to the CEO. I want, you know, things I couldn't do. I don't, I don't have access to. That's how I'd use an ally. And you only can get conferred it once you've done something. But you've earned so it. So let me, let, me, let me read the definition from... Please do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for us, an ally, so the definition, an individual who actively speaks out and stands up for a person or group that is discriminated against or treated unfairly, they challenge themselves, their own behaviours and the behaviours of people around them. So the responsibility sits with that individual. And I think it's not necessarily about um, who confers allyship or allying onto it's the individual Shakespeare says know thyself if you know that that's what you do or that's how you want to behave because that's what feels right for you that is what you need to do and if someone gives you the title great but it's about your own behavior that you are responsible for and do the right thing I'm just going to point to the many very well-intentioned white women who will definitely think of themselves as being allies, but at the same time be participants in reinforcing, you know, stereotypes, you know, constructs. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, we mentioned white fragility and white tears. Obviously, we've had Robin D'Angelo on the podcast in the past. I don't personally have an issue with the term white fragility. I feel like I see it. I feel like I can definitely recognize it at certain points in myself. And I'm very happy to be called out on it when it happens. It doesn't really offend me because I could definitely uh, recognize it as a real thing. Um, but I guess, you know, the idea of, uh, of white fragility uh, means that, you know, she talks about these, uh, the, the, the times in which sometimes white women are confronted in the workplace over behaviours that other colleagues, are, you know, women of colour in the workplace have found offensive. And then, you know, at that point, those women say, well, you know, we th I thought we were friends, you know, like I haven't got a racist bone in my body. And, you know, at that point, that person's thinking, you know, why am I being quote unquote picked on? I'm an ally. You know, I go to lunch with Sue and I would say at that point, this is where the ally conversation gets sticky for me. I just think, well, you know, you probably shouldn't really ever be thinking of yourself in those terms. You should probably just get on with doing the right thing according to what other people have, who were on the front lines have laid out for you as being the issue. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm slightly concerned, I guess, with the the self-absolution that can happen through through the term but but we can we can we can press on we can press on I want to talk about the term mixed race I want to talk about the term mixed race because um you know there's quite a few people around me who are and and it's been talked about in the podcast before obviously we know for anyone who doesn't half cast is not a term that should ever be used anymore uh, it was used for a long time. My mum's generation definitely still, um, you know, I think it's the go-to. You could catch them and say, no, mum, but, you know, that's the still go-to. Um, but I think for, for the younger generation, mixed race also comes into question. And, you know, even mixed ethnicity, again, for me, it comes back to like, aren't we again saying that there are two races, which there aren't? And, you know, also with kind of picking someone out as saying you're sort of like, 
the third class, which is a colonial heritage, the idea that there was, you know, white people and non-white people and these intermediaries that had different names in different colonial societies. How do we how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't replicate that? Well, um, <laughs> so both Jane and I um, talk from personal experience about this mixed race thing, because we've both got our various heritages in that in that world. And I would just kick off that, that kind of discussion by saying that if we're looking at mixed race being black, white, just for this point, it can be any, but actually I think when we talk about mixed race in the UK particularly, we're talking about black and white. Mm. I don't think we're talking about, you know, someone from Europe, French, and someone and white that is. I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about black and white. So we need to be honest about what we're talking about. And as soon as we do that, anyone who is a product of that kind of union of black and white, um, maybe any colour of blackness, but they'll never be white. And that's what society does. So when a child is growing up who is mixed race or dual heritage, they will often find themselves asking, well, where do I sit in all of this? Who am I? And so on. And that is a difficult thing and place to be really for a child particularly and then it just carries on as you get older until you yourself personally resolve it within yourself about your own identity um, but it's uh, one that you know when you look at literature when you look at research it, some people are just uncomfortable with the fact that a black person and a white person can a love each other but also have children you know I mean just it, it, that for them is an abomination and I think that's just pure racism absolute pure racism and, and you'll yeah thank you Maggie and you'll notice we don't have that as one of the words in our blackionary um deliberately because we want to eradicate it because of all the negative connotations that sit with that word and the discomfort that it brings to those um those of us who do have you know lots of different and wonderful heritages within us so we use the word dual heritage um and our definition for dual heritage is a person who has one parent who is of black heritage and and that is a a broader but probably truer um definition of someone who has more melanin somewhere in their bloodline and of course you'll come up um in this conversation against uh, the presumably there's people who are of dual heritage will say well actually i'm identify as black because society will never see me as dual i'm only ever seen as black and it doesn't matter how light skin quote unquote i might be you know i'm always perceived as black um and so so dual heritage as a preference um is that something that you think can help us what happens when we have like you know the generation after like my kids kids where their their dual heritage having kids with dual heritage and then but no one's a technically everyone's then dual double dual hair i mean how do we get how where are we going well by the time well, that I, happens sorry <laughs> <laughs> no jane after you i was just gonna say well hopefully we won't be having this conversation in in that that 
generations time anyway because everybody will be so accepting as one human race and love becomes the foundation of every relationship and absolutely and that's an, an amazing aspiration absolutely i would just add a little bit of caution that will only work if the systems and structures around us all growing up are changed so when you're our kids 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 they'll go these people in 2022 they were just talking about this thing called mixed race what on earth is that and what is this and so on they won't believe it but they will as long as structures are as they are today if they don't change they will they'll be back in 2022 even though it's 2150 you know it's just that's are you what calling for an abolishment of the monarchy because i feel like that's what you're saying <laughs> I'll skirt that one. <laughs> um, my last, my last question is on uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, I've got a lot of friends again who uh, have been on the panel, uh, who've been in in conversations, and and also friends who work in diversity and inclusion, who uh, started out very optimistic and have become increasingly cynical with time. For anyone who doesn't know what DNI is, what is it? And does it work? So diversity and inclusion, diversity are all the ways that we are different. And inclusion is each of us recognizing that we are all different in whichever way we are. And inclusion is about including everyone in your actions and in your behaviors and in your thoughts and in the language you use. That is what inclusion is about. And why your friends, some of them might be getting jaded is because there'll always be in organizations, particularly individuals or groups of individuals that just go, we're all diverse, there's not an issue. And yes, we're all diverse, of course. We might all look the same, of course, but we're all diverse. But the inclusion part is where organizations or businesses fall down, really. But diversity, all different. Inclusion is valuing that difference. And, and I would just say I can appreciate um, them getting slightly jaded. Uh, however, the way that Maggie and I work is we are very particular with which organisations we work with because we don't want to just be part of a tick box exercise. Um, and so we are very deliberate in the way that we engage with them. And um, it has to be long term. Otherwise, change doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it doesn't happen in a year when you have organizations that are steeped in a 400 year history it will probably take that length of time to undo and redo the thinking and the structures and the systems and the processes so for us it's about engaging with organizations who are looking for long-term results and understand that the journey um, sometimes can be quite painful but that they're invested in spending however long it takes to do the work to start the change. And when you're involved in DNI work, how do you get around the idea that we can have like facade change when it comes to uh, organizations becoming more diverse in the uh, the outlook, or sorry, the opposite, they become much more diverse in, in, in the look of their organization. So they've now got, you know, um, a, a, a black presenter, or they've got um, an Asian person representing the firm at such and such group. 
but actually what you have is many people who are willing to toe the same line and that the people within the organization who have a diversity of views and they could come from a range of backgrounds but they might also be more likely to be people of color those ones are considered the more difficult or or problematic ones so so then what we end up is with a lovely vitrine as we say in french a, a, you know a, a front uh, facing uh, that that seems to suggest change, but actually the people who are really agitating for change tend to continue to be seen as problematic within the organization and, and marginalized. So an organization becomes woke, that's in, in the lectionary. So they really feel good about that, that they understand what social justice is about and so on. And they do do the posters and they think, they've done it and all the screensavers you know all of that all absolutely facade and so on but when you look at the data that that organization might show it will show things like why is it that we've got a high proportion of in this case black people leaving that's when the facade starts to really scratch the surface you see a bit more that it's actually not working and those organizations they will be held accountable as time goes on but I think with most organizations, they should be responsible enough to be able to do that themselves without having any compliance matters being forcing them to behave differently. And that's what I think legislation can help us with. But, but organizations, you don't want, we don't lead on that when we go to organizations. We don't use the legal framework because it's a bit scary for organizations in that way. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and, and what will what will help talking about data is once the black british voices data has been fully analyzed um we will be supporting organizations utilizing that information to help them with the decisions that they make because you can't argue with with data and and you know maggie had before we started iq maggie had had this idea for quite a while and um and the fact that it 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 uh, came into being uh, at an extremely um, interesting time. It was a day, a year and a day of the death of George Floyd. So it was launched May 25th of uh, 2021. Uh, it was just incredible. And um, we're really, we've seen some of the, the reports and what it's showing us is really, really exciting. And this is something that we, you know, as part of what we do at iCubed, we offer to organizations this you know working with us so they can get an insight into the data and make it just if you know what you know you can't say you don't know it anymore and are you allowed to give us any previews i know that you're going to release it this summer could do we get any sneak sneak previews no so i'm being told no no sneak previews <laughs> okay we'll have to wait for the actual release fine um, we'll go to the quick fire round then if you are ready for that. Uh, quick fire questions, quick fire responses if that's okay. What is your definition of whiteness? Not being of colour. Yeah. What is the root of racism? Human Oppression. beings. Oppression. What is the opposite of whiteness? non-whiteness non-whiteness <laughs> is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view and is that universalist ideal ever achievable 
or even desirable? I call this utopia. I would love it to be desirable and possible. Um, this is more than a quick fire answer, but I don't believe that we're anywhere near that in our evolution. Really. If we can collectively think it, we can collectively achieve it. So yes. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Definitely. Yeah. Do you use it in the black scenario? Definitely not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Maggie and Jen. I do want to ask you lastly why you have not chosen to include it. Um, is that because of the reactions that whiteness can lead to sometimes in a corporate environment, or is there any particular reason? Do you know what? Whiteness is hidden really that that's the whole that's why it's so facetious it's hidden even though it's staring us all in the face and why would we buy into that collude with it to give it more amplification and more voice that's not what we're about you know the black kind of experience the black lexicon of language the words that are available to us there's so much that people don't know that's where we're going to put our energies when we're not going to do what others either have done um or just take for granted. Jane, I think that's right. We wouldn't. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's we we really want to start to change the way people think. Um, and whiteness is something, um, in my opinion, that we already think that. So it's not something that we need to to continue that that thought. We need to start to change thought. We want to start to change and create new neural pathways. So, yeah. Disrupt the whiteness. Me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, to you both for being uh, with me today. Um, if people want to purchase the little black book, uh, the Black Shinari, where should they go? Do you have a bookseller of choice? Well, the best thing I think, Jane, is to go to our website. You'll see us and you'll hear us talking about the book, which is www.i hyphen cubed dot co dot uk i hyphen cubed group dot co dot uk thank you fantastic um and if people want to connect with you individually is there a place is that the same place that they can connect with you and your work yeah go to the website and it's all there fantastic yeah. okay well that leaves me just to thank you once again for your contribution thank you for being here with us thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode of we need to talk about whiteness and do please subscribe on itunes spotify and soundcloud join us next time for more conversations on whiteness thank you so much